Almighty God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the maker of heaven and earth. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your spirit to illumine our understanding to your word and to quicken our hearts to sin. May our spirits this morning be attentive to receive your truth. Thank you, Lord, for placing us into your wonderful creation, which so often, though tainted, will reflect the steadfast, your steadfast love and your faithfulness and greatness and power and splendor. We confess our incessant desire to make the creation our end by living for the things we can see and touch, or we revel in our own self-worth and self-esteem through our philosophies and our dreams and our visions, our planning and morality, our intelligence and ingenuity. In so doing, Lord, we confess that we live our lives for things that can be seen, things that are temporary. We worship the creation and not the creator. We live for ourselves and not for you. We live for things that will perish. We pursue things so often which can be shaken, that will not, be, that will not remain. And we forget Christ, who is our eternal king and our creator. Turn our hearts this morning, Lord, to our reigning king, that we may find confident hope in his eternal kingdom, abiding faith in his righteous rule, and great joy as we await his victorious return to make all things new. By your spirit and through the preaching of your word this morning, Lord, cause our hearts and our lips to say, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to, Lord willing, finish Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. So keep your Bibles open there to Hebrews 1. And I want us to consider this morning verses 7 through 14. Verses 7 through 14. And I want to reiterate this morning what has already been uh, spoken of. And that is the centrality of Christ. We so often assume the centrality of Christ. And that, at that very time, is when we lose it, friends. When we assume the centrality of Christ is when we lose it. I think so often we assume that, well, we're Christians. And so Christ is important and valuable to us. And therefore, he's central. But we need to remember that we do not live in a world with Christ as center. We live in a world, friends, that uh, wants to do everything they can, not to necessarily just get rid of Christ, but to just simply allow us to have Christ as one of many. To have Christ as one of the all the options. You see, this morning, as I was here this morning, I was looking at one of the YMCA signs. And I don't know if you know this or not, but under those, some of those signs, one of the signs says, um, putting um, Christian values back in the family or something like that's their slogan. 
And I was noticing the sign, and I noticed that somebody had taken a knife or sharp object and scratched out Christian from the sign. You know, that, that's, that, that's, you know, sometimes may surprise us, but that's where we live, folks. We, we live in a group of people that are around us that don't want, that do, does not, they do not want Christ. Right. I was talking to uh, Ken this week about a friend he was sharing with. His friend he was sharing with was talking about the fact of, yes, we can have Jesus, but we also need to believe in this and this and all these other things. Very fine, okay with believing in Jesus as the Christ, but also Jesus as Christ and all these other things as well. I think this morning, we even here sometimes wonder, wow, we're really, aren't we kind of overdoing it on this person of Christ? And I think it's because of the world we live in. We think we've settled that issue. We've, we've dealt with that. Jesus is important. He's valuable. So therefore, he must be central. Friends, that is not the case. And the book of Hebrews, my prayer is that throughout this, this working through the book of Hebrews, and it'll take us a while, a little over a year, um, my hope is that we will find that Christ is not only central, but that when he is central, he is enough. Do you see the difference there? We can intellectually believe that Jesus is central. And I believe we can intellectually acknowledge that. Okay, yes, Jesus needs to be central. But this is the work that I'm praying for. This morning and every morning that I'm going to be coming to you with the book of Hebrews is to do what, what I can't do. See, I can help you understand that Jesus needs to be central from what the Bible says. But for you to affirm in your heart that Christ's place as central is enough is a work that only the Spirit of God can do in you. Right? That's the only thing that I, I can't do that. Only, only God can do that through His Spirit. And so my prayer is that as we work through Hebrews that the Lord will do that for us. Well, we acknowledge this morning that God is the maker of heaven and earth, aren't we? We all acknowledge that. The maker of heaven and earth. And yet we have the tendency to polarize those two spheres. So often we may lean upon the materialistic things of the world and think that they have so much weight that they define and structure who we are. We do that when we... Uh, think that our income or our jobs or our relationships or our things can define us, can make us who we are. And friends, that's not just outside the church. That's also inside the church. Where we place too much weight upon the things that are material, the things that are here on earth. And we know that God's the maker of both heaven and earth. But then there's others who want to say, you know what, the material things are, are not of any regard. We need to lean and, and place heavy emphasis upon the spiritual things of the Lord and of God. And so they are caught up in all kinds of dreams and visions and mysticism and prophecies, even into asceticism of if I can just deny my body of this and this and this, then I can really show myself to be a true believer. That's what so often, what sadly, what Lent becomes, isn't it? For so many believers, I'm not a big proponent of Lent in the sense that most people understand it, in the sense that I can, I can deny myself of certain things, fast of certain things, and then I can be more acceptable to God. That's not only not the gospel, that's contrary to the gospel. That is me doing something to please God, and when we're at that point, we are not anywhere near the gospel. And so you see what we're doing here? We're emphasizing the spiritual instead of the material. We said we're going to be ascetics. We're going to deny all these things. 
We become mystics, uh, mystics and, and we even become superstitious. Well, we see this number on the, on the billboard or we see this, this certain thing and we, we start trying to figure these things out. We emphasize the spiritual. Let me reaffirm this truth. Our God is the God who is the maker of the heavens, the spiritual, and the earth, the material. And when he created it in Genesis 1-1, it was very good. And we need to acknowledge this morning what my hope is as we work through verses 7 through 14 is that we're going to see that these heavens and these earth, this earth was all created not so that we can find our hope in those things, either the spiritual or the material, in heaven or on earth, because both of those things were created by God, right? God's the maker of both those things. But instead, that in Christ, we find that those things were given to us so that we can exalt him, so we can serve Christ, so we can look to Christ, so we can see Christ is sufficient. Why? Because in Colossians 1, our Bible tells us, he, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Remember last week, we talked about what firstborn meant? Firstborn means that he is the, the one of upper rank and status. He has the superior, preeminent place of all creation. So he is the firstborn of all creation. Christ is there of the heavens and of the earth. Christ is supposed to be preeminent in all those things. And if we try to make either one of those our end, our goal, then what we find is that we make either one of those idols and we lose the, 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 the great joy that God has given us each one of those. He's given us physical bodies, right? The earth, God's also given us a spirit that, that, is, that, is, that can be, right now, my prayer is that God's Holy Spirit is speaking to your spirit. And so we're both of these things tied together, heaven and earth. And Christ is preeminent over them. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so this morning what we find is this understanding, this study that we've been looking at, specifically in Hebrews chapter 1, a study on angels, has helped us see that both heaven and earth need to come together. That we cannot polarize them and say, material world is bad, spiritual world is good, or vice versa. The material world is good, the spiritual world is bad. We can't polarize those. We have to see both of those under the lordship of Christ. And that's my prayer this morning as we work through verses 7 through 14. As we look specifically at verses 5 and 6, I want us to notice as we catch up here. Verses 5 and 6, last week we looked at, and we talked about the two words, the begotten and then the firstborn. Begotten, the word begotten is in verse 5. Firstborn is in verse 6. We talked about how Christ is superior and that he is of superior rank and status. We talked about both the word begotten and firstborn as speaking of not his pre, that he did, that he did not come into existence at some point, but that he had instead authority and status. And then we landed in the end of verse 6 and said, let all of God's angels worship him. Do you remember that? This morning, I want you to see real quickly before we get going real well, is that this morning we're going to land in verse 14 where the angels aren't worshiping, but instead the angels are serving. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so last week we landed with the angels helping us. Remember last week I talked about how the angels help us in worship? 
because Christ is our necessary and sufficient object of worship and the angels help us see that. This morning we're going to see that the angels also help us in our serving and that they help us in that regard as we look through 7 through 14. All right. Well, the question that has not been answered from the Hebrew author up to this point, verses 5 and 6, is was there a time, was there, is there a time, will there be a time when Christ will no longer be? Is there going to be a time in the future where Christ will no longer be? If he's begotten and firstborn, then is his reign going to be like other reigns, like other kings who reign for a while and then that drops off? And then God the Father, in the Hebrew mind, the people that were receiving this letter, the book of Hebrews, were Hebrew people. They were Jewish people who were believing in the Old Testament and were now converted to Christianity and trusting in Christ as the Messiah. And they were going through a lot of suffering and a lot of struggling. And they were wondering whether they should continue to pursue Christ or if they should go back to their old way of living, which was the Old Testament sacrifices and rituals. And so the question these people are having and that this author, this pastor in this book of Hebrews is addressing is this. Is this reign that Jesus has, is this this time that he's going to be um, the king, is it going to end like other kings? Was there a time that it ever began? Is there a time that Christ came into existence? Because these words, begotten and firstborn, seem to indicate that at least at first glance. The author here of Hebrews sees this argument and wants to address it. And so this morning, this morning, I want us to see a couple things. First, I want us to notice this is the big idea. That Christ is the eternal sovereign over both heaven and earth. Christ is the eternal sovereign over heaven and earth. Now, you can live your life life's according to that principle and that, that truth, or you can try to crash your life against those rocks and find that there is no thwarting of God's will. Christ is the absolute sovereign, the eternal sovereign over the heavens and the earth. And I want us to see this in three particular steps. Verses 7 through 9, I want you to see the eternal king. Verses 7 through 9, the eternal king. Number 2. The eternal creator, verses 10 through 12. The eternal creator. And then finally, number three, the eternal reign. Reign meaning what a king does, not what happened this morning. The eternal reign, verses 13 through 14. The eternal king, the eternal creator, the eternal reign. And so let us look at this as we consider Jesus Christ and the angels, as they speak of Christ and as they worship Christ and as they serve Christ, this eternal king, this eternal creator, this eternal reign. Notice with me, if you would, verse 7. But of the angels, he says, now let me catch you up here. This pronoun here, he, is God. God is speaking here. So when it says, of the angels, he says, this is God saying this. This is not Christ. Of the angels... God says, and this is Psalm 104, verse 4, which Ken read for us this morning. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. He's quoting Psalm 104, verse 4. And so God is saying here that of these angels, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What's amazing is, as Ken read that for us this morning, Psalm 104, we notice at the very beginning of that psalm, it's actually in your worship journal there at the beginning of the call to worship, verses 1 through 4. 
I want you to hear this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, the first hearers and readers and singers of this psalm When it says, bless the Lord on my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. And it goes on and talks about what God does in creation. Who are they thinking of? God the Father. What is the author of Hebrews saying? That God the Father is speaking of Christ in this psalm. That it is Christ that's being spoken of here. That Christ is the one who is laying the foundations, who is stretching out the heavens like a tent, who is laying the beams in the chambers. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, what exactly does it mean that he makes his messengers uh, here in verse uh, 7? He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What exactly does that mean? I don't know. How's that? I studied for a long time this week trying to figure out What is it exactly? That's just so ethereal. That's so kind of out there. And then I realized what he's saying here. If you look at this, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. These are are agents of power and authority and majesty. He's not belittling the angels here, is he? He's saying these are awesome creatures. But the point of this passage is the verb. He makes them. Christ makes them. You see what the point is? See, I think you miss the point sometimes when you're looking. What is angels' winds and ministers of flame of fire? How do they do that? The point here isn't how they do that. The point is that they are majestic, awesome, incredible creatures. And yet, Christ, God says, Christ makes them. He makes them for the purpose of doing what they do. It's amazing. Now, notice the contrast here of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's saying, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8, contrast, but the Son, God says, this is he saying, God speaking again, but of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's amazing. God the Father He's calling God the Son, God, in this passage. And this is actually Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. So he's quoting a psalm from the Old Testament. And it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the angels, as splendid and wonderful and majestic and awesome as they are, were made. But Jesus, His throne, has been forever and ever. He has never begun. He will never end. His throne, his majesty, his reign, his kingship is forever. So this eternal king that we're looking at in verses 7 through 9, first it says that his throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's amazing. It's going to last forever into the future. 
It's going to last. Is there a time when the father's reign or the, the son's reign, Jesus Christ, will there be a time when his reign will quit and then the, God the father will pick it back up again? like the normal kings that happened in the Old Testament. See, the kings of the Old Testament came into being, they reigned, even the best of them, like King David, came into being, reigned for a good long time, and then died, and then another king had to pick it up. Is that the kind of reign that we're talking about for Christ? That's the understanding here. And what the Hebrew author is trying to say to these young Christians who are wondering if they should go back to the Old Testament and begin believing it instead of Christ, is saying, no, Christ's reign... According to God the Father, His throne is forever and ever. He will will reign forever and ever. Notice it goes on and it says, The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now this this scepter is a a rod or staff that the king would use for the purpose of, of, of issuing edicts and demonstrating his power. And it says here that this scepter of his is a scepter of uprightness. This word is the word for straightness. His scepter is one of straightness. Is, and, and it says his uh, scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. It's amazing. It speaks of here God's power and how he's going to make everything straight or right. Verse 10 or verse 9. Verse 9. You have loved righteousness. And this is, this is why Jesus has the reign and the authority and the throne forever and ever. First is that he has the scepter of righteousness and that the scepter is, his, is the scepter of his kingdom. But secondly, we see in verse 9 that he, that, that he Jesus, has loved righteousness and has hated wickedness. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Now, this doesn't say that Jesus loves goodness and hates badness. It doesn't say Jesus hates the, the moral, or Jesus loves the moral, and he doesn't like the immoral. These are, these are all subcategories of these big headings, and these big headings are this, righteousness and wickedness. You see, here's the, here's the problem with this passage. None of us are righteous. No, not one. Right. None of us are righteous. We can be good. We can even be moral. We can't be righteous. And God's kingdom demands righteousness. You see, our righteousness, according to Isaiah, is as what? Filthy rags. We bring to God our best, our, our thinking. This is our righteousness, dear God. And we bring it to Him, and He says, this is, this, is, this, is, this is worthless. This is as filthy rags. What does Christ require? In his kingdom, his scepter is one of uprightness. And it says here that he loves that which is righteous and he hates that which is wicked. And it goes on, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. Because Christ is one of righteousness and one who hates wickedness, it says that God has anointed him or established him or shown him or displayed him as king. And Christ did that or God did that when he sent Christ on earth to say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who will reign and have the kingdom forever and ever. This is the one who when he was lifted up will draw all men to himself. This is the anointing that's being spoken of here. And it says this anointing is one with oil of gladness. Those who come to Christ or those who will trust in him will be those who know that this is a great, great and glad thing 
If we're trusting and leaning on and living and wanting Christ and our hearts are burdened and dismayed and dread, then we're not trusting in Christ as we should. Our trusting in Christ should be one of hope and joy. Christ is one who has been anointed with the oil of gladness. It says here, beyond your companions. Some translate this idea of companions as being that Christ is, his reign and his status is above all of humanity. And so these companions are mentioning or speaking of all of humanity, and that's what it's speaking of here. I believe that because of this kingship authority kind of image that's being spoken of here, what he's saying is that he's anointed Christ, God has anointed Christ with this oil of gladness beyond all of his companions, meaning all of the other kings of the Old Testament. Every king that these, this, these people that the author of Hebrews was writing to, all these kings that they knew, the good ones and the bad ones, all of these other kings, you know what they did? They came and they went. Some of them were righteous, right? They did what was right in God's eyes. Some were wicked. We know that every, almost every king it makes a statement about the fact that this one did not do what was right in God's eyes, right? And so there were good ones and there were bad ones. And there were ones that came and they went. But all of them, what was the issue? They came into existence, they did their time, and then they left. But what is happening here with Christ? What, what, what the Hebrew author is saying is that with Christ, his kingdom will last forever. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness. And he is in this way, because of his kingdom that's going to happen forever and ever, because he's one who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, he's one who is beyond his companions. Beyond any of those other kings, Christ will reign. He is the, as we say, and as we pray, and as we sing, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That's what it's speaking of here. He's saying Christ is other. He is different from all of these other kings. That's amazing. Now, why is it important for Christ to have such an eternal kingship, such an eternal righteous kingdom as he has? Well, we know that these people in the book of Hebrews were suffering for their faith. They were under great trials and tribulations. They were struggling. They were looking at the world and they were seeing that there were so many things that the other people that were not trusting in Christ were doing, and they seemed to be exceeding, succeeding and doing well. They seemed to be um, going along with their lives, and things seemed to be a lot easier for them. Why? Because they weren't trusting in Christ. They weren't making Christ exclusive. Now, there were people that were in this area, if we, we look at this time period, there were people during this time period who said, yes, Jesus is a God. Just like every, this God over here is a God. And so there was people that was, there was pluralism there as well, just like there is here today. There were people who said, yeah, Jesus is God. If you believe in Jesus, that's great. I'll I'll affirm that. I'll, I'll encourage you in your belief with Jesus, but don't push that on me. I believe what I want to. Today I can believe in Jesus. Tomorrow I can believe in something else. But the exclusivity of Jesus was causing a lot of difficulty and struggle for them. And their question is, is it worth it? Their question was, is Christ enough to sustain my life that's that's, that's actually, honestly, gotten worse, not better, since I began following Christ? Things are very difficult. Their lives were coming apart. Their trusting in Christ made things hard. They had to separate themselves from so many who didn't want this exclusivity of Christ in their lives. You see, today, friends, as we share Christ with others, we need to be confident that Christ is enough and that Christ is the one whom we worship and adore and honor. And he is, he is it. That's it. It's the final. 
Now, now we can fall on the side of being arrogant and pompous about that. Or we can fall on the side of being so um, dogmatically narrow that we refuse to even listen to the other side. Right? So that confidence isn't a, um, I'm in my little box and nobody else can come in here because I'm scared that they might convince me of something. Nor can it be an arrogant, pompous, um, just kind of throwing it in people's faces. It has to be a confidence. I am a Christian. I trust in Christ. He is the sovereign over all the universe and all creation. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And all of those who are not trusting in Christ will go to hell. And that's the truth. There's no... There's no now, now that's, that's very difficult. That's not fun. That's not something that we want to just... We want to just, just throw out there. But we want to be very careful and confident that Christ is enough. See, this is what these brothers and sisters were trusting or, or, or struggling with in Hebrews. Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 12 of Hebrews. I want us to see this struggle just a bit. Why is it important for the author of Hebrews to tell these people, this congregation, that Christ has an eternal reign of righteousness? Because they looked in their world, just as we look in our world, and we're not so sure. If Christ is sovereign over all things then why is our world so unrighteous? Why is there so much wickedness? Why is it that the, the people that are bad and wicked continue to flourish and do all kinds of wonderful things and that we are trying to follow Christ and it seems everything is hard, nothing's easy. Everything's a struggle. And then when we get together at hospitals or in our living room or even at restaurants and we pray and lift up Christ, people look at us like we're foolish. We're ignorant. You're trusting in that superstitious stuff. You see, their struggles are just like our struggles. Can we be confident in Christ? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. The author of Hebrews was helping these young Christians who are struggling in this way. Look at verse 22 of chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now listen, verse, tw- verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See, they're, 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 they're possibly going to refuse Christ. They're possibly thinking about refusing or stepping away from Christ, pushing away Christ. See that you do not push him away who is speaking. Verse 25, for if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Do you see the heaven and earth there? He's God, Christ is going to shake the heavens and the earth. The phrase, verse 27, once, the phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. Now listen to this. This is the point. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken... May remain. Therefore, if Christ is doing this in our world today, there's unrighteousness, isn't there? 
There's struggle. There's turmoil. There's difficulty. Is Christ really reigning today? Is he really has a scepter of rightness and making things right? What this passage is saying and what the Hebrew author is trying to say to his audience and what I want to communicate to you this morning is that in all the mayhem and all the disorder, you know what Christ is doing? He's shaking all the things in heavens and on earth that have been made. The powers and the principalities, the political scene, the countries, the nations, the people, the things, the stuff. He's shaking heaven and earth. Why? In order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Have you ever been shaken, friends? Many of you have. You've been shaken to your core. And you know that at that time, there's nothing that's stable but what really is, right? You've been shaken to your core and you lean on your family. And you realize, my family can't be there for me right now. Or my family might be the reason I'm shaken. Because they've been made. I'm going to lean on my my security of my checking account. I'm going to lean on my this or my that or my these things. And you realize, all of this stuff can be shaken. And what is God doing by His Spirit? He's helping us see that there are things that cannot be shaken and they will remain. And when that happens, when we get to that point, friends, when God is shaking this earth and all that is and all the heavens and helping us see that these things are shakable, but these things remain, you know what's going to happen when we begin getting that? We'll get down and we'll find that Christ is the one who will remain. Verse 28 of chapter 12, Therefore, let us be grateful to receive... Excuse me. Let us... Be, uh, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. He's burning off the dross. And He's making that which will remain that much more glorious. Now, you and I desperately try to live for those things that are dross. And then when they start melting away, you're thinking, there goes my everything. And God's saying, Christ is more beautiful than that. The only reason I gave you those things is so that you can see my blessing in them. And you're wanting to worship those. And so here we see that our God's eternal kingship, eternal kingship, forever kingship. You bank your life on Christ. You will never, never regret that. Because in Christ, we find our, our eternal hope, our eternal, unshakable, remaining glory. Why is it important for Christ to be king? 1689 London Baptist Confession, speaking of Christ and his work, says, Why is it important for Christ to be king? We need his kingly office. Listen to this. I think this is so beautiful, so comforting. We need his kingly office to convince Subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and to preserve us. Christ as king will convince us, will subdue us, will draw us, will sustain us, will deliver us, will preserve us. Until when? The confession goes on and says, until we finally enter into his heavenly kingdom. Don't you need a king like that? I need a king like that. We need that kind of eternal, sustaining, caring. You, you'll, come to, 
You'll come to the point where everything is shaken and you'll come to God empty-handed and say, God, I can't do it. And then your king, your vicar, your, your righteous one will say, all wickedness will be set aside. All righteousness will become to me. And God will draw his people to himself. And that will have nothing to do with you and nothing to do with me. It will all be because of our king. Amen. What a day. What a day. So our eternal king. Secondly, our eternal creator. Our eternal creator. So we talked about the fact that will there be a day that his kingship will end? Well, the answer is no. His kingship, his reign is forever, right? And ever. Well, the question then is, is because of these words begotten and firstborn, is there a time when his kingship will start? Was there a time when, when Christ all of a sudden began to become king and to reign? Well, according to verses 9 through 12, the Hebrew author says absolutely not. It goes on in verse in verse 7, it says of the angels, and it speaks of them. Verse 8, it says, but of the Son, he says. This is God speaking of the Son. He says that his throne is forever and ever. And then in verse 10, it says, and, picking back up on what the Father says about the Son, in verse 8, and, here's the second point, he is the eternal creator, verses 10 through 12, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, I want to stop there and look in this particular passage, this particular phrase here, or verses 10 and 11 and 12, is actually Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Let me read to you Psalm 102, verses 1 through 3, just so you can get an idea. You don't have to turn there, but listen, if you will, of the distress and the despair that's going on in the, in the psalmist's heart in Psalm 103. Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 102, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 102 says this. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Have you, ever, have you ever started that way? Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Listen to this. For my days pass away like smoke. And my bones burn like furnace. Do you see what's happening here? This psalmist is in great distress. He's crying out to God and he's saying to God, My days pass away like smoke. They're here for a moment, they're, and, then they, and then they just drift off. This is the psalmist crying out to God. And then at the end of that psalm, the psalmist says this, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. You see what the psalmist is doing? That's the, our verse here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, is the end of that psalm that I just read in Psalm 102. He comes to God and says, My life is passing away like, my very soul is passing away like smoke. There's nothing I have in me that everything is in distress and in struggle and weary. And he gets to the end of it. He says, But, but, the Lord laid the foundation of the earth. The beginning of the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish and go away, but you remain. You see what he's doing? He's saying that in Christ, this is what the Hebrews, Hebrew author is saying, this understanding of Lord here is speaking of God saying that Jesus laid the foundation of the earth 
in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of His hands, the works of Christ, His hands. And if Christ is the one that laid the foundations of the earth, and He's the one that makes the heavens, then let me ask you something. If that's the kind of God that you worship and serve, explain to me how big your problems are. Just let me know. You see what's happened? He's placing his, his problems in his issue in light of how big God is, not in, not in light of how big his problems are. See, what happens with us so often is we place our, our circumstances and our issues in light of how big our problems are and how, how much I can handle it or not handle it. When you do that, you'll find that all your problems are insurmountable. They're going to overcome you. You'll get an ulcer. You'll worry yourself to death. You'll become anxious. What is this psalmist doing in Psalm 102? What is the author of Hebrews doing in this passage? Is he saying to these believers, don't put your problems and struggles and issues in light of your abilities. Put your problems and struggles and issues in light of God's abilities. And in, in light of Christ and what he has done. And let's, let's, let's set this straight according to the Hebrews author. Christ has laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. Now what's your problem? See what, see what you have? You have Now, I'm not belittling your problem. I'm simply saying that God can handle it. You can take it to the Lord. He can, he can do something with it. Now, the Lord, I've been praying for years or maybe months or maybe, maybe I've been praying so long. I don't know whether the Lord's going to answer this prayer or not. Get this. Hear me. The fact that the Lord hasn't answered your prayer in the way that you want it to be answered doesn't mean that God can't do that. See what happened there? You're not waiting on God to work up the power or the ability to fix your problems. That's not what you're doing in your prayers. We have to trust that God can answer that prayer. God can change that circumstance. God can make things what they are and move things around anytime he wants to. Because he's king. And the reason he hasn't is because he won't. And that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. But know this, God is good. He is righteous. And He's doing all that He's doing for sanctification. He's doing all that He's doing to shake those things that can be shaken and to show us that which can remain. Verse 11. Verse 11. And I want you to get this verse and specifically the first phrase. And if you want to just Write this somewhere and stick it on a mirror on your dashboard or somewhere. You can do that this week. This will, this, will, this will bring you a lot of mileage in way of a passage that will bring stability in your life. They, in verse 11, they will perish. That reference to they is speaking of the earth and the heavens, right? Isn't that what it's speaking of there? Look at the passage. Verse 10 speaks of the earth and the heavens. And it says in verse 11, they will perish. But you, who's the you? Christ. This is God saying, the heavens and the earth will perish, but Christ will remain. The heavens and the earth will perish, but Christ will remain. Say it one more time. The heavens and the earth will perish, Christ will remain. The anxiety about your job this week might have just fell away. Right? Or your relationships, or your securities, or your provisions, or what's God going to do with my future? 
Or who is God going to put in my life? Or how is this going to work and how is that going to work? The heavens and the earth will perish, but Christ will remain. Do you see that that truth is rooted deeply in our soul? It, it, it flips everything on its head, doesn't it? It makes, it makes everything have to pass through, well, what about Christ in this situation? In this job opportunity? In this relationship? In this circumstance? In this struggle? Everything is, well, what is Christ doing in this? Not, well, how can I do a, have a better or have a more or get a this or get a that? Heavens and earth will pass away, will perish, but Christ will remain. Everything finds its meaning, its substance in who Christ is. Everything on earth, everything in heaven, everything we do. Now, what does that mean? That's a pretty trite, short, pithy saying right there in verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. What does that mean? Well, he goes on and he says this. Verse 11, they, the heavens and the earth, and this is, he's explaining this first phrase in verse 11. They will wear out like a garment. That's easy to understand. We all have clothes that need to come out of the closet, don't we? They've been worn out for years, and we just stop wearing them and keep them hanging there. All right? They wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. Now, let me, let me help you here. You're, you're getting this imagery of a garment, a robe. God's talking about the heavens and the earth here. The heavens and the earth, there will be a day that Christ takes them and says, all right, that's, that's over. That's done. There will be a day that everything in the heavens and the earth will be according to this passage. They will wear out and like a robe they will be rolled up and like a garment they will be changed. They'll be changed. It says here that Christ will do this. Now notice what it says. Verse 11. I want you to follow me here. The parallels. They will perish, but you, Christ, remain. They will wear out. Verse 11. Be rolled up like a robe, like a garment. They'll be changed. But then the second part of that phrase is, but you, you see how that is the same thing that verse 11 does? They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out, verse 11. And then we get the but in verse, at the end of verse 12. But you are the same. You are the same. They will wear out, but Christ remains the same. In other words, the very same book, all of us are hearing this in our heads right now, aren't we? Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. That's the book. This, that's, that's the book of Hebrews. Christ is the same. Everything wears out. Everything gets old. All of creation, heaven and earth, will be rolled up one day. But Christ is the same. Christ is the same. Now, this is his eternal, he's the eternal creator. He's not only a creator, but he's, he, he will gather up all things one day. Notice what it says in the end of verse 12. And your years will have no end. These are Christ's. Christ's years will have no end. Now, why is this important for these Christians that are suffering? Look, if you will, at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I just want to read a few verses here just to give you an idea. 
If God's the creator of heaven and earth, one day he's going to roll it all up. These Christians were struggling in their faith. In what way were they struggling in their faith? I want you to see this because this is incredibly important for the author of Hebrews here to say, our Christ is not only an eternal, an eternal king, but he's also the eternal creator. It says in verse 32 of chapter 10, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that means came to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. What was their hard struggle with sufferings? Verse 33, Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so, those so treated. So they were publicly exposed and ill-treated. They were probably beaten. They were probably ridiculed in public. They were probably put down. They probably lost their jobs in certain areas. That's what it's speaking of here. Verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. Now some people are saying, well, they were just going to people in prison. No, these people that were in prison were people who were living their faith for Christ. And they were going and visiting them and risking their lives by going and visiting these people in prison and bringing them food, more than likely, so that they could continue to live. The prisons then didn't have cable and basketball courts. They basically lived, and whoever brought them food, that's how they continued to live. These Christians were risking their lives bringing these other Christians food and substance so that they can live in prison. And so they had compassion on those who were in prison. And you joyfully accepted, notice this, the plundering of your property. So while they were out taking care of these prisoners with the family, they went to do that. They realized that their property was being plundered. It was being taken. It was being gone through. Their property was being plundered. How can they live for Christ in that way? Was Christ enough? Well, if Christ is the eternal creator, then he is enough. Because the creation isn't the end, right? Christ is. The only reason I have my stuff is so that I can glorify and lift up Christ. That's the only reason I have anything that I have. Notice what it says in chapter 10. It's amazing here. It says, you joyfully, how in the world did you joyfully accept the plundering of your property? How did you do that joyfully? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. One that couldn't be plundered. One that couldn't be taken. You can Anything that you take from me is that stuff that can be shaken. But the stuff you can't take from me, that's the possession that's a better one. That is Christ. That's the one that's an abiding one. That is Christ. If Christ is the creator of all things, then anything we have in our possession is His. And it's to be used for His glory. It's amazing here. They were joyfully accepting the plundering of their property because they knew that they had a better possession. Why? Because Christ is the eternal creator. Let me close here, verses 13 and 14. The eternal, the eternal reign, and this is going to be quick. The eternal reign. Verses 13 and 14 basically wrap up the chapter. And we transition into chapter 2 next week. But it wraps up the chapter here, verses 13 and 14. And it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand? Now, that phrase should sound familiar to you. Turn back to, to, to the beginning of chapter 1 of, of, of Hebrews, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Well, here's the question again at the end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand? Well, the answer is none. 
There's been no angel that he's asked to sit at his right hand. And it goes on and it says, this is Psalm 110, probably one of the most, most quoted psalm verses in all of the New Testament. This is quoted all over the place. Just about I mean, many, many different authors quote Psalm 110, 1. And it says this, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so here he's declaring that there are the angels and then there's Christ. And you know what Christ is? He's the reigning sovereign. He's the one who's reigning all over, all over all things. And all things eventually one day will be, it says here, you're at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All things are going to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what God the Father said. He didn't say it to any of the angels. He only said it to Christ. Notice the contrast here in verse 14. Because remember, in this chapter, we're talking about how Christ is different from the angels. That's the whole point of chapter 1. And he comes back to that point. And he says, this is how Christ is different than the angels. Verse 14. Are they, not all ministering spirits, sent out, this is speaking of the angels, these angels that he says, of, uh, to, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand. But they, verse 14, these angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are inherent salvation? Christ is the reigning sovereign. The angels are the servants. Christ is the reigning sovereign. The angels are the servants. That's the contrast here. The angels are to serve. Christ is to reign. Now, how do the, the angels here, last time we asked last week, how do the angels help us concerning worship? Remember we asked that in verse 5? This morning I want us to close by looking at how, does the angels, how do the angels help us in our service? And it is this, and this is the point. Just like last week, I came down to the one particular point. This is it. The angels teach us that Christ is the only sufficient end for everything we do, for all of our service. Christ is the sufficient, and you can even say necessary end for all of our service. Well, why is that? Why is it that Christ is the sufficient end for all of our service? Because he is the eternal king who will reign forever and ever. He's the eternal creator who's created all things. Everything in heaven and on earth finds its meaning in Christ. And until we begin living that way, we're not finding our true meaning in what God has given to us. We are going to be apt to live in such a way as the things in this world are more important than anything else. And we'll so idolize those and make those our end that we'll forget Christ. Our money, our possessions, our things. And we will not be willing to give over our stuff for the cause of Christ. Or we'll so spiritualize and want to live our lives with our heads in the heavens that every vision and dream and mystery will become superstitious and we'll live our lives in the spiritual quasi-world and think all of that is important and the material is not. And we'll so idolize that that we'll become mystics. Let's take all of heaven and earth place it under the lordship of Christ and find that everything finds its meaning in Christ. Why is that? Let me read all of Colossians 1 as I close. For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of the cross. The angel says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Let us live our lives both in heaven and earth for Christ and Him alone. Let us pray.